so you might notice uh, I have a couple more cuts and scrapes on my on my head than usual after shaving this morning. I uh, went into the, the bathroom today after my my wife had taken a shower and the mirrors were entirely fogged up. And I thought, well, I could shave tomorrow. No, I'll shave now. So I decided to shave without a mirror, which is not something that I'm used to doing. And so going a bit blind and having to go by just touch, you know, I got some cuts here and there, some scrapes. But it made me think about the connection between, uh, or rather the connection with, right view and right resolve. The two uh, beginning path factors, path factors rather, of the Eightfold Path. When we see the whole list of eight, we see that the first two listed are right view and right resolve. Samaditi and sama sankapa, right? My teacher likes to talk about them as uh, one being a map and one being sort of the plan of action that we come to because of the map, as we look at the map. We figure out we must need to do this, need to do that, and so we come up with a path of action. And so me shaving this morning, I thought the mirror was a lot like right view, and the path I thought I was going to be taking with my razor was right resolve. And by not having any right view to depend on, all I had were resolves that kind of went this way and that way, which impacted my actions. It led to a couple cuts and scrapes here and there. So I do like to think of those as connected in an important way. And this was something that happened that I thought, okay. And so I started thinking too about how, uh, you know, the last couple talks I've, I've given, you know, these last couple months, in a lot of ways were exactly about both right view and right resolve. But I started thinking that, you know, even further, when it comes to the whole idea of Dharma talks in the first place, Often what is discussed is precisely that that's going to in some way impact or influence our views and resolves. Because that's really all that we have to work with together, speaking to each other. You know, as, as people practicing the path, when we're talking to each other, building these admirable friendships with each other, we're really sharing in views and resolves. The rest of the path ends up being a bit more uh, personal let's say, or more dependent on us ourselves. We can spend this time together talking about views and resolves, and then when we leave here, it's up to us and what we've done with those views and resolves and the way they lead into right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. That's the part that a, a Dharma talk really can't touch on. We can discuss it, but in discussing it, we're back to views and resolves. The practice is always up to the individual. It's the part that no person in my position who speaks on the Dharma can ever do for another person. You're responsible for your actions, I'm responsible for mine. When we go out into the world, whatever it is that we think, whatever it is that we say, whatever it is that we do, we're the ones responsible for that. But in discussion, we can help inspire and encourage each other to adopt certain views and certain resolves that shape the path itself. 
So I started thinking about that. And this example I have of shaving, I think, illustrates it pretty well, you know, because I had to rely on a lot of other things not having the map in front of me, but I really wish I had the map. The mirror would have been really useful. That's the only way I've, had, I've shaved my whole life. I've always had a mirror right in front of me. I've never been in the thick of it in the woods and had to shave my head or trim a beard or anything like that. I'm, I'm just a guy that has always had a mirror in front of him, and it's helpful to have the mirror. And that way I can actually see where I'm going and see what I'm doing. Saves my head a lot of hurt. So our views are very important in, in life in general, but especially for us as, as Buddhists, our views impact not just the, re, our, the resolves that we have, the plan of action that we have, but then the actions themselves. I think that's why it's so important that as Buddhists, we think very carefully anytime we're presented with views and uh, really, really look at them and explore them and try to understand them, grasp them before we put them into practice. Because if we just go into practice blindly, we can see what happens. I'll go a little further back, not even a little, a lot further back to uh, an example that has been in my mind a lot lately. When I was about 13 or 14 years old, I was very, very, very interested in Buddhism. And I knew the rudimentary fundamentals of meditation kind of a little bit. I was meditating, but I was doing it all on my own. And I was going around trying to find things to learn from, trying to find things that would impart any kind of wisdom to me. And I remember one time I was at a bookstore and I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the big boxy ones. So it might have been Barnes & Noble. Could have been Borders. Remember that place? I don't remember which one it was. It was just one of the big stores. And, you know, anytime you went into one of those big bookstores, you know, they had the good stuff in the back. But up front they had, you know, sort of the Creative Commons public domain stuff where they didn't really need a whole lot of permissions to print stuff, you know. That's where you find a whole collection of Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe and you find Dracula and stuff like that. Always a nice binding, nice addition to put up on your bookshelf and watch it get covered in dust as you never read it. And one of the things that I found in the mix of all that, kind of in the bargain book section, was this little, this little fat book. It's shaped like a, like a perfect square if you look at it from the front. And it was called The Little Zen Companion. And it was one of those things that was just filled with whatever the publisher could put in that was either free or cheap. And anything that they thought maybe had some vague, tenuous connection to Buddhism. So like if Albert Einstein said something that sounded kind of Buddhist, they'd throw that in there. And a lot of stuff like that. But it also had these other little sections. You know, it had little instructions on chikantaza, just sitting. It had little sections on, you know, tea ceremonies and sipping your green tea and everything. And then it also had, you know, some, par some parables and, and aphorisms and stories and whatnot. And, and every one of them was, was meant to be uh, Buddhist or Buddhist adjacent or just sounded vaguely Buddhist to whoever put this together. And at that young age, you know, I, I took this book and really thought of it as like, this, this is some stuff right here. This is going to help me out. And I had this routine of, of picking it up every morning and just opening a page randomly. And whatever I saw on the page that day, that's 
that's the wisdom I needed. Like, you know, I used it like some people use tarot cards or something like that, or some kind of oracle. It's like, come on, little Zen companion, tell me what I need to know today. And I, I used it like that for a while. And there was this one story in there that uh, I found really, really meaningful at the time. And I can't remember the exact way the story went, but it's, it's one that you hear a lot in some Buddhist circles and different versions. And you kind of find it out in the wild too, and even non-Buddhist places. And you know, the, the, the vague outline of the story is some guy is traipsing through the forest or the jungle or whatever, and he falls into a hole and he's holding on to a rope. And you know, where he's holding on to vines or something that's by a tree or by whatever. And you know, I think uh, the way he falls in in the first place in some versions, he's being chased by a tiger. And he's running away from the tiger and he falls into the hole. He manages to grab something, he looks down, and there's a tiger at the bottom or whatever. And the story, the version that was in the little Zen companion was uh, that as he managed to catch himself and he sees the tiger circling the hole from above and he looks down, he sees the tiger circling down below. He sees uh, like a little thicket of um, wild strawberries, I think. And he manages to see one kind of little mm, plump strawberry. And he, he plucks it and it's ripe and he bites into it and it's sweet. And that's the end of the story. And, um, you know, I remember being really touched by the story, so much so that, you know, me being like a, a weird little 14-year-old in high school, I was in my Spanish class, and our teacher was really cool. So people would come in at lunch, and they could write whatever they wanted on the chalkboard. And people would write all sorts of random stuff or draw whatever, and I thought, I'm going to impart some, some Zen wisdom on these guys. And I wrote maybe a couple lines of the story. And... Uh, Immediately, other people started changing the story and making it into something salacious and dirty and whatever. And I remember being so, so uh, indignant and, and so uh, justified in my outrage that I, I remember in the beginning of class, we're already in session, our teacher's teaching. I walk up and erase the whole thing and write it again in full with the Zen companion in my hand. Like, you're going to learn some stuff today, everyone. Uh, you know, really, really silly stuff. But it was something that, that was important to me at the time. And throughout the years, I've, I've heard different versions of the story. Uh, one big one that showed up recently, uh, quite surprisingly to me, is a, it was a stand-up comedian who incorporated it into their special. But instead of it being strawberries, there was like sap dripping from the tree. So this person talks about sap in the story. And it's just one of those things that pops up. And, you know, as, as I've continued my, my Buddhist education, you know, every time I find some story that I found particularly useful or insightful, uh, I tend to want to find the, the source, where it came from. And in some cases, I've learned some stories in Buddhism, regardless of what tradition it's in, and I managed to trace it to, back to something that's actually, like, in the Pali Canon or even the Mahayana Sutras. I find some way that it exists in Buddhist scriptures. Now this is one of those stories that doesn't. It doesn't originate, originate in Buddhism whatsoever. But it is actually an extremely old story. So I'm not going to share the, the entire story in full because it's much longer and way more convoluted. But this story comes from the uh, Mahabharata. It's a, it's a Indian text, and mostly Brahmanical and, and Hindu and everything. And in this version of the story, 
uh, you still have someone falling into a hole, but it's quite different. You know, the, the jungle itself is very dark and mysterious and foggy and scary. And there's giant monsters. I think there's even like this giant monster woman that's like going after the guy. And there's like ogres and all sorts of weird stuff. Like it, it, it sounds terrifying. It sounds like the forest was designed by Guillermo del Toro. And he's meaning to scare the hell out of you. And this guy ends up falling while he's being while he's running around in the forest, and he falls into a bunch of vines, and he's all stuck. And in the story, he's actually hung upside down. He falls in the vines upside down, and they're vines that are hanging from a tree. And so he's in this hole. He's caught up in the vines. The vines are attached to a tree, and there's all the stuff that's still around him and below him and above him. And there's also a bunch of bees that are just buzzing around, and uh, they have this big hive, and this hive is full of honey that's just shooting down in jets. And so he's hanging upside down and he's just, he's there and the, the honey is dripping onto his chin and making its way into his mouth. And in the story, in this, in this text, the Mahabharata, I think it's chapter 13 or something like that, he's, he's taking in the honey and that's sustaining him but not quenching his thirst. That's one of the things that the text says. He takes in the honey and it's keeping him alive but he's in this terrible situation. And the text says that even though he's in this terrible situation, the fact that he's in the, he has this honey makes him think, ah, not so bad, right? And then chapter 14 of the Mahabharata goes in great detail describing what every single thing means in the story. The trees represent this. This big, giant, scary woman means this. The big ogre means this. The bees mean this and everything. And the lesson that's supposed to be drawn from the story is, I think, different than the one that I had read in my little Zen companion. When I had the little Zen companion, if there was any moral of the story, and they never quite spell it out, it's more like this idea that, like, you know, life's kind of crappy, it, it sucks a little bit, but, like, there are these couple things in life you get to enjoy. Like, you're in this situation that you can't, con- you can't change, you can't control, so if you, if you manage to find the little bits of happiness, that, that's good enough, right? And then the Mahabharata, that's the completely different message, like entirely different. The message is more like the forest that we just described, the Guillermo de Toro uh, horror forest, the nightmare forest, that's just the world we live in. That's samsaric existence. And the little bit of honey that this guy is managing to, to eat on and sustain himself with, even though it doesn't quench his thirst, is the kind of pleasures that the everyday person just kind of settles for rather than trying to find a way out. And I think it's important to bring this up as an example because this is one of those cases, one of those times where, oddly enough, Buddhism and this Brahmanical text or like Hindu text are kind of in agreement as far as the the Pali canon is concerned, as as far as certain Buddhist traditions are concerned. We seem to be very paralleling each other in the sense that Sangsada is not a place that we want to continue to be. We want to develop a path to get out of samsaric cyclic existence. We need to recognize the horror of our situation, have a sense of sangwega, develop that, and then actually want to find a way out and not be, not really settling for that little bit of honey that's, that's doing much at all. Like it's not quenching our thirst. So I think to take this uh, Hindu epic story that's found in the Mahabharata and make it into something uh, perhaps more Buddhist, at least in terms of the Pali Canon, would be to say that 
we have this little bit of honey, which means that in samsaric existence, it's not all terrible, it's not all bad. The Buddha said this himself, that we live our lives and we're actually things that we enjoy doing, things that are good for us to do, good for our body, good for our mind, good for our spirits, for lack of a better term, something that helps keep us energized, keeps us going. But the examples that we find in the Pali Canon, when it, when it talks about those kind of things that we can liken to the honey or the sap or the strawberry or whatever, are the things that we use as means to get out of samsara. We don't use it to settle in and get cozy into samsara. We use what energizes us, we turn them into path factors, and we go on. I think that the version that, that I learned and the version that seems to make its ways around a lot uh, also has its value too, but I, I would draw a different lesson from that version. You know, the guy that's in his position and can't change it whatsoever, uh, and he finds something that like, okay, well, there's at least a little bit of this. I would liken that not to the path itself, but to the development of good equanimity. When we talk about the Brahma Viharas, when we talk about equanimity, that's actually a good way to look about it, or rather, rather look at it. Those times in, in our lives where there really is a situation that we can't change, there th there's things on the outside that we can't do something about. That honey, that sap, that strawberry is really what we have inside of us that we can rely on in those moments that help us power through the situations that we can't change. And in that way, equanimity is a lot more like patience. And that's something that we can rely on. That's that, that taste of that sweet strawberry, like in the example. But the older version of the story, I think, encapsulates the path quite well, ironically. Um, but we can even take it further by looking at right view and right resolve the way we find it in the Pali Canon. With right view, we, uh, we have both the mundane right view and the supernormal or supermundane right view. Mundane right view might actually surprise Westerners because it starts with the things that we usually come to later in Buddhism, as we start developing it, and we gain confidence in it, and we start to believe in some of the stuff that perhaps we were quite skeptical of before. For the Buddha, mundane right view begins with a belief in karma and rebirth. That's where he starts. That's mundane right view. This sense that our actions matter, and they matter more than just this life. That's the idea, that karma as action is something that actually affects the world, that our generosity matters, uh, having respect for our parents and taking care of them as, as well as our sphere of people that we're involved with and taking care of them and being good to them, that matters. That it matters well beyond this life, that things have happened before this life and so on, that's mundane right view. Super mundane is when, when it gets actually into the Four Noble Truths, which the Buddha described as the teaching that was unique to the Buddha alone. That a lot of other people taught mundane right view during his time. There were a lot of competing schools and they all taught their particular philosophies as Dharma, Dhamma. They all called it that. And what he said was unique versus all the other Dharmas that were being taught at the time was the Four Noble Truths. And that's what he considered to be super mundane. So it's in coming to an understanding, coming to right view in regards to the Four Noble Truths, that's the truly Buddhist part. Understanding and recognizing stress and suffering, seeing where it comes from, how it originates, and putting an end to it, seeing what actually puts it to an end and realizing it. And of course, the fourth noble truth is the path itself, the Eightfold Path. So we can see the way it sort of plays in on, on each other. So many of the lists that we have in Buddhism, all the various things that we can study, 
are like feedback loops. People want to try to conceive of them as, as lists that you start with right view, right resolve, start all, go all the way down and work yourself to concentration. But that's often not the way it works. We kind of do all of it all at once in little bits and pieces and they reinforce and strengthen each other and we find that as we live our lives as practitioners of the Dharma that they all interplay and strengthen each other, support each other. The way I like to think of it is when we take the whole Eightfold Path and we turn it into three parts of our virtue, our concentration, and our discernment or wisdom, we're looking at a tripod. The camera that the people on, on YouTube are watching right now is sitting on a tripod. And if you took any one of those legs away, that camera would tip right over. So it needs all three. But without view as a starting point, at least in some way, in regard to the Four Noble Truths, we might not see much value in practicing in the first place. And even if we have seen the value, we might not have a good sense of which direction we're going. And so you'd be like me, shaving this morning, scratching the hell out of my head. So that's what I've, I've been thinking of uh, these last couple months in terms of right view and right resolve. And it just so happened to be that this morning gave me a pretty good example of the way that they're connected. We have the map and we have the plan of action, but then we also have action itself. And this story that I've shared, I've shared in two different ways. In one sense, it's the entire path. And in one sense, it's skillful equanimity. But both, I think, are very valid. You know, honestly, you know, I bring this up because of my interest in these kind of things as a scholar and also as someone who speaks on the Dharma. But I also want to just call the question, what is it that exactly makes something a Buddhist story anyway? You know, is it a story just because someone says it's a Buddhist story? Is it a story because a Buddhist says it? Or is it because it's something that we find in the texts and the sutras and the suttas, whatever, you know, commentaries and whatnot? So I think whichever version that we find the most appealing or useful in this moment, in this time, uh, is Buddhist to the extent that we actually put it into practice and what results come from that practice. That's always the, the measure. You know, uh, I, this example I have of the mirror as the map could also be used in another way. One of my favorite stories is the lesson that the Buddha gave to his son, Rahula after Rahula, in the commentaries at least, it says that Rahula had been telling lies and little little fibs and being a kid, because at the time he was like seven years old. Uh, and the Buddha talked about how the mind is like a mirror used for constant reflection, right? And that's how we measure our actions, that we look at our actions and see the results and reflect on them. So when we hear different stories and we hear different versions of them, when we don't know which one's right, and in some cases, we don't, we couldn't possibly know which one's right or decide which one's right or find the original source or original meaning, then we have to take the story and then see how we can turn it into a path factor, how we can turn it into something useful to our practice. And not every story is useful that way. I don't think anyone's watching the movie Super Bad and finding Dharma in there. I mean, if they are, wow. But well, there's always these things that we can do in our life. We come across various examples, various stories, various narratives. And it's on us as Buddhists to find whatever meaning we can in them. And if we really can't, discard it. And sometimes it's discarding it for a while. When I found out that this story of the guy and the strawberry was something that 
maybe some editor had made up or perhaps some Dharma teacher had taken it at some point and made it into a Buddhist thing. I, there was a, a younger version of me that was very upset and thought, this isn't real Buddhism. How dare they tell a story like that? Kind of fake news sort of stuff. I was all mad. And, uh, you know, I, I would go out of my way to, like, be really corrective, you know. Um, and over the years, as, as I've been practicing now for quite a while, you know, I find those instances and I think, like, okay, well, is it, is it still useful as the story is told? And like I said, I think in this example, it is when we look at it as a certain aspect of the path. Because if we try to take that story as just enjoy the small things uh, because you have no power and take it to mean the whole path, it becomes extremely limiting. This sometimes happens when we look at the, uh, the five reflections. You know, uh, sometimes we say this and the way we translate it is, is this thing that we're stuck with. We can't do anything about you know, I'm, I'm of the nature to get sick. There is no escaping sickness. I'm of the, of the nature to grow old. There's no escaping old age. I'm the nature to die. There's no escaping death and things like that. I'm of the nature to lose all the things that I care about and all that stuff. And the thing is, when we, when we look at the way it is in Pali and the way we can translate it, we find a much different narrative, which is, you know, I'm of the nature to grow old, I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to get sick. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow distant, be removed from all that is dear to me and everything. But then there's that fifth part, that I'm the heir to my actions related through my actions. I have my actions to, to depend on and so on. There's a whole way of, of phrasing this. But the idea being that these things that are brought up you know, sickness, old age, death, being removed and separated from what we hold dear are things that only are true to the extent we stay in samsadic existence. I have not gone beyond them yet. But the Buddha's promise in, in his teachings of the Dharma is that it is possible to go beyond those things. You are not stuck in the vines. There is a way out of the forest. And... In the fifth reflection, he tells you how. It's through your actions, through what you think, through what you say, through what you do. And so that's one way we can take this and really make it something that blossoms in this forest that we're developing in our mind, this, this uh, little scary place that we're in. We can start lighting torches that find a path out of the forest, out of the danger. So I think that's, that's a good spot to, to end today. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or maybe even similar stories of how you've taken lessons and reinterpreted them for yourself, you know, anything like that would be helpful to share. Thank you.